0: Good morning. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. Glad you could join us today. Let's think about history for a minute. A history where white people and non white people were separated by law and lived very different lives. I'm talking about South Africa and apartheid, which ended in 1994, but I could have just as easily been talking about the history of the United States. So what can Americans learn from South Africans about racial division and healing? That's a question I've been thinking about a lot lately. Tomorrow, I'm catching a flight to South Africa for an 11-day tour of the country. I'm traveling with a small group of public radio listeners from Minnesota and eight other states. We'll visit historic sites in Johannesburg and Cape Town. We'll tour vineyards and go on safari. We'll also meet people who live through apartheid. I've been reading a lot about South Africa to prepare for this trip, and there was one person I particularly wanted to talk to. Siobalela Mandela is a regional project manager for East and Southern Africa at Journalists for Human Rights. He holds a Ph.D. in international relations and conflict resolution from Nelson Mandela University, which is named for his great-grandfather, the late former president of South Africa and Nobel Peace Prize winner. Dr. Mandela was in Minnesota in the spring of 2022 for a month-long residency at the College of St. Benedict and St. John's University. He joined me remotely from a city near Cape Town a couple of days ago. Well, hello. Thank you again for making time for NPR News. It's such an honor to talk with
1: you. Thank you very much, uh, Angela. It's a pleasure and a privilege to talk to you and continue to your listeners as well.
0: Before the interview, Mandela asked me to call him Madiba, that name has a lot of history. It's his clan name, dating back to his family's kingdom in eastern South Africa. He explained that men there usually go by their clan name. When Mandela was giving a speech in Minnesota last year, he introduced himself as Madiba. I asked him why that's so significant.
1: There was a normal and the usual academic way of introducing us, uh, which is very much colonial in, in approach. And I asked if the audience allowed me to introduce myself in a very decolonial way. And that is by locating myself in the history of uh, my people in the African continent and in the history of uh, my people within the Temu Kingdom. And I think that is of critical importance. And it, within that space, I then ask the audience to actually take a pause and recognize the kind of trauma that our fellow brothers and uh, sisters and mothers and forefathers who went through uh, the slave trade system and how they were stripped of their identity and dignity and uh, their own history in general, that the many can't even locate themselves in history on who they are and what are the names of their ancestors and what is their history in general and which kingdoms do they come from. Madiba, that's me.
0: I I can only tell you. (laughs) My name's Angela. My people
1: uh,
0: are from Virginia and I can't tell you more Mm. than that.
1: Yeah, and and that's very much actually. It speaks into that trauma and how deep uh, the trauma of slavery and segregation has been to our fellow brothers and sisters in the United States that they cannot go as far as locating themselves in their own genealogy, in their own history, who they are. And that also speaks into the particularly specific reasons of why a white man decided to strip us of our own identity and dignity so that we do not know who we are and where we come from. If, for instance, you ask many of white folks in different states, they are configured according to where they come from. Others will say, no, our ancestors come from England or our ancestors come from the Netherlands and so on and so forth. There's something very powerful about knowing who you are and where you come from. You know, I am who I am, and I stand in the shoulders of my ancestors. And this is what my ancestors have done throughout history. So that is of critical importance. When you are grounded in who you are and where you come from, it makes it easier—at least the journey a little bit lighter. When you are engaged with the challenges uh, ahead. Now we're dealing with issues of systemic racism. We're dealing with issues of discrimination. When others try to treat her to, with that inferiority complex we are able then to call them out because we know who we are we know who, where we come from and we know who to call f- from when we are in need of strength you know i, I when yeah. i say i stand in the shoulders of my ancestors i know who whose ancestors i'm talking about and i know their names and i call, i can call them by names and for me it invoke a sense of strength and then I can feel myself embraced with the with with the blanket of wisdom that would enable me to articulate myself clearly in that particular space that i 'm placed in to deliver whatever message that i 'm supposed to deliver
0: That is powerful, and as we talk about your ancestors, um, I want to talk about your great uh, grandfather. Nelson Mandela, who died uh, at the age of 95 in 2013, so about 10 years ago. Uh, how old were you at that time when when he died? In
1: 2013, I remember the time I was actually uh, in my second year in university, okay. 2013. Yes, I so was you're... doing second year in university. Um, so you're so college student? Me, I think I was probably... Yes. yes, our college student, probably early 20s? twenty twenty one. Okay, yeah, early twenties. Yes, definitely.
0: So, tell me about that. What was it like for you to be around him when you were growing
1: up? Um, to be honest, um, I only uh, recognize uh, the significance and uh, the contribution that uh, Madiba has made to the history of my people and to the history of my country and the continent. Uh, later on, when I was just uh, in high school, heading to university, growing up, I didn't really understand the fascination around this old man. <laughs> all I remember very well was uh, in uh, during each and every Christmas uh, on the 25th of December, he had this tradition of uh, bringing together all children from across uh, nearby uh, villages to come into his house and to get a Christmas presents and then some and some entertainment. Uh, he had uh, a very close uh, relationship with young people. Um, and at the time, I really didn't understand the obsession over this old man. Uh, in my view, I thought he was pretending to be Santa Claus or something like that. But it came later on to, under- to the understanding that uh, when I u- read about him in high school and further into university, then I understood his contribution in our own history as a country, as in our own history as a kingdom, and the history as a continent in general. Um, that And for me, it has always been that old man who's always concerned about um, what people are doing and what they are studying and what they want to be. And of course, surrounded by this cloud of political leaders who I did not understand as political leaders at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's the only, uh, limited, uh, understanding of him. Uh, you'd remember when he was released in eleven February, 1990, I was not even yet born at the time. I was only born in 1992. Mm-hmm. So growing up in those prime, uh, uh, prime times of his administration, I was still very much a toddler at the time. Um, And um, by the time I was of age to understand, uh, he had left government probably 10 years ago. Um, He he was in uh, political uh, retirement and just engaging on humanitarian work. But as I studied in depth uh, the work and his contribution in the history of the country, in the history of the continent, uh, in the history of the uh, kingdom, I get to understand who Madiba was and uh, very much proud of what he has done. Uh, As a leader,
0: whenever I hear Nelson Mandela's name and I I think of him, I think of a man who, um, you know, was robbed of so much—twenty-seven years in prison for fighting to end apartheid, to fighting for the freedom of his people. And when you mention an old man, um, you know, his his youth was spent behind bars, much of it. Um, And so for you to carry his name, do you feel a sense of urgency to use your youth to continue this work as a human rights uh, activist and scholar?
1: Well, um, of course, his legacy and his history has an enormous influence on the work that I'm currently doing. Uh, First and foremost, it is a sense of responsibility that um, as this generation, we have a collective responsibility to build upon the foundation that Mandela and his generation have created for us. Uh, For we are enjoying the limited freedoms that we are enjoying today, the access to basic human rights and access to opportunities. We are enjoying these limited freedoms, freedoms that they did not enjoy at their time, freedoms that they fought for, freedoms that they went to prison for. So, from the recognition, it, it is uh, on the basis of the recognition of such sacrifices that then informs the kind of work that I am currently uh, dedicated on at this moment to say they dedicated their lives to fight so that the generations yet to come do not have to endure the very same injustices of the apartheid regime, the very same injustices of the colonial and oppressive system. And when they achieved what they were fighting for, even though they did not holistically achieve what they were fighting for, but with the limited freedoms and the foundation that they've laid for us, we therefore have a collective responsibility to take the baton and build upon that foundation and push further the frontiers of oppression, segregation, and all forms of injustices, be it just speaking about discrimination or uh, racism in, in general so that the history does not repeat itself. And as, as it seems to, uh, in, in, in the trajectory of the uh, politics, in, in, if you observe politics on a global scale, there seems to be a tendency and a yearning for the old, for the good old days of uh, slavery, the good old days of segregation, the good old days of discrimination and racism. So our responsibility is then to build upon that foundation and push further forward those frontiers Uh, and confront uh, 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 racism and segregation whenever it raises its uh, ugly head.
0: And so as you travel uh, the world talking to young people, future leaders, Mm -hmm. uh, is that your message to them? What is their responsibility? Uh, Is it to, you know, as soon as you identify uh, division, as soon as you see signs of racism, Mm -hmm. to take action, to say something and do something?
1: What is your call to action to them? mandela's uh, generation they had this understanding our freedom is not complete until all the oppressed people in the world are free so that is why when they managed to uh, uh defeat the apartheid regime in south africa mandela was quoted arguing that our freedom is not complete until the freedom of people of palestine and all the oppressed people around the world so the fight against injustice the fight against oppression the fight against racism and discrimination was not only limited to South Africa, but it was one that concerns all members of the human family. So now we remind them that the injustices that are currently being uh, conducted uh, or uh, directed against the people of Palestine is in fact an apartheid regime as it was in South Africa, and therefore we must do something about it as members of the human family. We are lobbying continuously lobbying other members of the human family to say what they've done for us in south africa should also be done for the people of palestine who are currently uh, experiencing the israeli apartheid system so and are the forms of uh, oppression and injustices be it happening in the united states or we are talking about uh, canada Uh, as it pertains to the indigenous communities, we are still experiencing the remnants of the Indian Act there. And even in the United States, the uh, indigenous communities we are still experiencing uh, the remnants of of the Indian Act or the remnants of the segregation system in in the United States, the infringement of rights, particularly for black people, or the skewed patterns of economic distribution and how the states in the United States uses, systematically uses law to infringe and segregate against one group by another. In this case, majority of our people in uh, the United States, particularly people of color and black people, are systematically targeted uh, through uh, the police. And you have seen with a lot of killings that are happening directed at black people. And if you observe uh, in your prison, the majority of the people that currently fill the prisons in the United States are black people and people of color. And that is systematic racism. And that is something that we must speak against and even hold our governments to account when they do not question countries such as the United States, when they perpetuate such injustices against our people in the U.S. and in different parts of the world as well.
0: Madiba and I also talked about racial disparities in Minnesota. As you know, I often talk about that on this show. Minnesota has some of the worst racial disparities in the United States. Here are a few examples. Minnesota ranks dead last in the nation when it comes to graduation rates among Black students compared to white students in high school. In the Twin Cities, three-quarters of white families own homes and only one-quarter of Black families do. Minnesota has the second biggest income inequality gap in the country, second only to Washington, D.C. Medeba says he saw the effects of those racial disparities during his time in Minnesota. When he taught at St. John's and the College of St. Benedict, he was surprised that many of his students had never had a black teacher. I asked him his thoughts on racial disparities in our state.
1: Well, for me, it's it's quite shocking and it is surprising. One of the contributing factors to that um, is is this. I think America has been so great in marketing itself as a model uh, around the world to say, if you're looking for any system of democracy and a form of leadership, the American way of living is the way of life. And uh, hence, everyone uh, aspires to taste the American dream. And for us, we have been to America a number of times. And I tell them that, actually, I I remember even saying to someone in Minnesota that it seems as though I am in the devil's house because I come, I was socialized and raised in a very racist environment. But the kind of racism I experienced in Minnesota was completely different. And, And you can even sense it even in institutions of higher learning. Um, I remember at the time there were two encounters which raised uh, a lot of dispute with my existence within that space. Um, I remember receiving a call, two calls, actually, one from my university uh, back in South Africa that we have received a call from a university in the United States that we're asking to authenticate whether you have a PhD. Now you're called a doctor. Are you really a doctor? And the university, of course, gave them direction to say, yeah, this particular individual graduated within our institution. In fact, if you're interested in his PhD thesis, this is the link, you can download it here. And the second encounter, I received a call from the family um, saying we have been contacted by a member uh, within the University of St. John's University uh, questioning the Nelson Mandela Foundation, whether am I really a relative of the Mandela family? So that's the kind of um, bigotry. That's the kind of racism that they will deal with. That, to an extent, that for me, one of the questions I would raise to the academics: that if you are so opposed to the views that I'm advancing in class and public platforms that I'm engaging in within the university, why don't you ask such questions? Why don't you challenge my intellect? And expose me if you want to expose me. Why would you go behind my back to undedicate if I have a PhD or if I'm part and parcel of the member of the Mandela family? So that the kind of the atmosphere that I was dealing in, I could actually tell that, you know what, I'm actually in the mother of the devils of racism I've ever experienced. I've never experienced that kind of racism in South Africa. And I was so exhausted. By the time I left Minnesota, I was so exhausted. I was saying to myself, you know what, when am I going to catch a break? Because I grew up in a racist country and I moved into another country, hoping that at least I will escape that kind of racism. And you get there, you you are confronted with the worst of racism. Uh, in that ever lived. So for me, I'm not uh, surprised and I'm not shocked actually to hear such statistics, but what is uh, puzzling is how America projects itself in the world as this perfect country, and this perfect nation, and yet when you go inside, you get to understand that. In fact, we are better off than America. Just to, to conclude at that point, uh, we had uh, a public discussion, uh, a panel, of academics, I was one of those pa- uh, panelists in, in the University of uh, Saint John's. It was called "Politics in the Pint." The theme came from Benna Boy's song: "That Why Are the I think it's Benna Boy Why Are These Slaves uh, Owners Appearing in My Dollar?" Something along those lines. And what was puzzling and the question that I actually uh, first asked when I was engaging in that panel was: "It's such surprising and disappointing." So here in 2022, United States only questioning why do they have slave owners appearing in their currency. One would have thought that when the country was emerging out of segregation and out of slavery, they would have done a lot of transformation. And it's such a very traumatic and violent thing, in my perspective to see one of former slave owners in the very same currency that you carry on a daily basis. And I even made an example of South Africa to say, these are things that we dealt with on the onset of our own freedom to say, we're dealing with our currency, we're dealing with our flag, we're dealing with our national anthem. Because these soft powers are kind of things that are actually uh, invoking that trauma uh, and provoking that trauma and makes us to relieve the very same trauma. In fact, we even went as far as to ban the apartheid flag in South Africa. It is unconstitutional to even raise that. It is, in fact, a criminal offence in South Africa. But to have a country like a U.S. that has had uh, a democracy for probably over 100 years, but still have in their currencies the faces of slave owners, and that continues as normal. And yet there are many who who were victims of such a system and when they continue to see such, they relieve such trauma and it provokes such trauma. For me, that was quite uh, interesting. That was quite disappointing to see an institution only discussing that in 2022.
0: I had to take a breath there <laughs> for a moment and just uh, process all that you shared. And uh, again, during your time here in Minnesota, people questioned um, your education, they questioned your identity, they questioned like, like you know, you know. I think a lot of, of Black Americans, particularly, you know, in the workplace, feel that, right? That there's always mm-hmm. this question, do you, do you have, you know, the right to be here? to speak, Mm -hmm. to be heard. So with that in mind, I want to talk to you about healing and forgiveness and uh, reconciliation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Your great-grandfather, Nelson Mandela, talked so much about forgiveness, so many powerful quotes from him about forgiveness Mm -hmm. and how it can empower us. I I wrote down one of his quotes. He said uh, when he was released from prison after 27 years of being incarcerated, Nelson Mandela said, as I walked out the door toward the gate that would lead to my freedom, I knew if I didn't leave my bitterness and hatred behind, I'd still be in prison. He also said resentment is like drinking poison and then hoping it will kill your enemies. Madiba taught to me about forgiveness and, and how you've seen it work in your
1: life or what you think about it today. There is a sense, uh, particularly from the West, and the tendency to romanticize Nelson Mandela's legacy as uh, this peace-loving individual and who was preaching forgiveness against everything else uh, that stood in the way. And that is a false narrative. The forgiveness aspect comes uh, within the context of the truth and reconciliation process. That if we can go back and uh, investigate and analyze what went wrong in the past and the perpetrators of such injustices during colonialism and apartheid can come forward and shed light into the injustices that happened. then maybe we can find ways in which we can heal as a nation and move forward and reconcile. And in that process of moving forward and in that process of reconciling, then we find forgiveness. So you cannot just forgive when there is no recognition that such injustices that happened were actually a crime against humanity that is one thing in south africa and that's what even the united nations in the 1980s identified apartheid as a crime against humanity once that is identified as a crime then we are able to identify who are the perpetrators and who are the victims of such an injustice. And how do we bring these two together and how do we reconcile them? And the reconciliation is only a possible true, uh, truth-telling. And once we, we are aware and fully aware of what, wanted, what happened in the past, we are able to move forward and reconcile. And then we are able to define how that reconciliation is going to go about. So the reconciliation means that we then have to reconcile to re- bring about redress to the injustices of the past. So if, for instance, there is... The, the So in the truth and reconciliation process in South Africa, for instance, there was an amnesty uh, uh, um, uh, committee which was all about forgiving those who have committed these injustices. And there was an a, a committee that focused on bringing about the compensation to the victims of the injustices of the apartheid regime. So here we're talking about the transformation process. We're talking about giving the land back to the people, the land that was stolen back to the people to, to the people by the white minority then must be returned to the people so that the land and the economy can be shared among all those who live in it. And that is where the forgiveness process comes into existence. You cannot expect an individual who came and raped our mothers and foremothers and brothers and brothers and sisters stole our land, stripped us of our own identity. Now that we've uh, find a negotiated settlement, we can then forgive them. You cannot forgive if you have stolen, for instance, the land of my ancestors, where the bones of my ancestors have been buried. You cannot then expect me to uh, willy-nilly forgive you because it is a democracy. You must retain what you have stolen to the people. And then we have a conversation on those injustices that happened in that past, in the process of such uh, a discussion, then we find ways to reconcile and forgive. So what the worst notion and concept of forgiveness is that we had a negotiated settlement, we went to vote and we forgive one another, which is a false narrative. Nelson Mandela was In fact, a man who in the 1960s realized that violence was actually a way to respond to the government that was using violence against uh, defenseless uh, and unarmed people. So their own conclusion was that in the 1990s, it is time to do away with the nonviolent movement, which they've learned from the likes of Martin Luther King, but to adopt a, a, a different shift, which is the use of violence, as a means to bring down the apartheid regime into the negotiation table. So in our history, particularly in the West, they seem to erode that kind of history into Madiba's uh, legacy. They seem to forget that he was, in fact, a commander-in-chief of the armed forces of the African National Congress and the military wing of the African uh, uh, African National Congress, a man who advocated for violence a leader that was pragmatic to understand that violence at that point in time was necessary in order to bring down the strongholds of the apartheid regime and force the government to come into the negotiation process so when you speak of the notion of forgiveness we must Mm. not uh, actually erode that history which is that is what the education system from the west Seems to uh, advance that notion that you can actually do injustice to people and those people can forgive you, and that is a very false narrative. The, the negotiation process in South Africa and was structured in such a way that when we speak of forgiveness, it is the final phase of the process, it is not the beginning. You must tell the truth, which is different to what the United States have went through. The United mm-hmm. States throughout its history of segregation, throughout its history of slavery, and throughout its history of violence and racism, they've never went through a process of truth and reconciliation. But yet, countries that have went through similar uh, systems of oppression and violence have adopted uh, a system that would enable their nations to move forward. If you look at uh, Argentina, for instance, they had their own truth and reconciliation process. If you look at Chile, they had the similar system. If you look at uh, Germany, uh, they had what they call the Nuremberg Trials to deal with the injustices of the Hitler regime and the injustices that were called to the Jews, the Jewish Holocaust. The countries such as the United States, they did not go through such process. Hence, they are so quick to talk about forgiveness without giving a context of where that forgiveness comes from.
0: Now, back to the conversation with Siubulela Mandela, a South African scholar and social justice activist. He is the great grandson of the late Nelson Mandela, who was the first black president of South Africa and a Nobel Peace Prize winner. I spoke with him remotely, leading up to my 11-day trip to South Africa with a small group of public radio listeners from Minnesota and eight other states. Mandela's great-grandson goes by the name Madiba, and I talked to him about racial injustice in the past and in the present, in South Africa and in the United States. I asked him how South Africa's schools taught students about the history of apartheid.
1: It's structured in such a way that you can recognize who were the perpetrators and who were the victims throughout that history. But the most problematic uh, thing about it is that it is actually written from the perspective of a victor, not uh, the victim. So oftentimes, if, if, for instance, you're looking at the colonial history, you're reading on how uh, the Boers um, or the Afrikaners defeated the Zulus or defeated the Corsars or other ethnic groups, or how the English or uh Uh, The colonial, uh, British colonial system actually conquered different parts of our land. So that's where it becomes problematic is that it is taught on uh, the stories told by the victor. So what the country uh, is going through and what particularly my generation uh, were actually advancing when we're calling for free decolonized education system, we're calling for the kind of an education system where our black people are represented in our particular history, where in fact the books that we are reading are books that are written by black scholars instead of white scholars. Because uh, the kind of history that we have learned is a watered down version of our history as black people, even though they gave us a different perspective of where we come from and different wars and different systems of oppression that we've gone through, but it is still a watered-down version because it is written by a white man for us to read. In fact, I was taught, even in my university, I was taught my own history by a white man because universities were predominantly uh, uh, white institutions in South Africa, and they were only designed for white people. Then I had only access to white lecturers who were teaching me about my own history. So Mm. our movement for free... uh, decolonized education system for the poor was to speak directly into that to say we need a decolonized education system and I think it's something that uh, even in the United States uh, uh, black people need to start questioning the representation of uh, black scholars in the education system in the United States and particularly investing in black scholars that are writing the history about black people. In the United States, not instead of only listening to the victor's side and perspective of what history is.
0: I have found, as a talk show host, that um, you know conversations about race um, they can be difficult. I mean, some people you know they struggle with the words. Uh, people either you know can walk away with a lot of. Of, uh, of not listenings, I think, part of it. How do you describe this discomfort about talking about race and, um, and how do we move past it and figure out how to have civil conversations uh, that promote understanding?
1: So, for me, I think, um, uh, Angela, one thing that I have actually picked, um, and now that pertains to my experiences while I was a student at George Mason University, I was a uh, visiting scholar at George Mason University for about four months in Virginia. In That's my home in state. In Virginia, yes. yes. Did you like Virginia? In Virginia. Um, not really. Oh, I, for man. some reason, I. <laughs> For some reason, I went to the most racist states in the U.S. all the time. I, go, I keep asking what is wrong. Well,
0: wait, wait, wait a minute. Virginia is right outside of Washington, D.C. What What happened during your month teaching in, in Virginia at George Mason University?
1: Well, at George Mason, I was actually a researcher more than a teacher. So was, okay. it was during my PhD. I did four, four months of my PhD uh, research okay. in uh, the School of Conflict Analysis and, Res- and Resolution at George Mason University. And uh, one of my experiences attending these academic discussions, particularly ones focused on issues of race identity, was uh, the precisely something that we have actually uh, pointed into the inability to listen to one another. And uh, for me, one of the things that I've identified is that because uh, in the United States, the government and even the community in general have Uh, I missed an opportunity to provide space where many of these uh, frustrations are ventilated. When you are now engaging in these academic and formal spaces, you engage in so much anger that each side cannot even listen to each other. They are actually fighting. I have never been experienced in my life, particularly in academic lecture, where people were insulting each other in that level. And these are professionals and these are academics. And the level of language that they were using and the insult that they were throwing at each other, I just concluded by saying, Americans, rightfully so, black people and white are actually very angry people and they are very angry at each other to a point where they can't even listen to one another. And mm-hmm. that's, that the contributing factors to that is because the people have been so frustrated for the longest of time, and the government has failed to provide the platform where these uh, frustrations are ventilated, in this case, going back to the point that we're arguing on, on the missed opportunities by the U.S. to create their own truth and reconciliation process. I mean, Canada has started that, I think, in 2013, they started their own truth and reconciliation process to discover what went wrong in their past. And 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 embark in the process of bringing about redress to the injustices that were caused by the Indian Act. The United States has not followed suit into that. What that creates is the frustration. And once such frustrations are building up, then you experience what uh, psychologists call the displacement of frustration aggression. And that's what, basically, I was observing when I was listening in these academic discussions at George Mason University on how angry academics are and. And these are professionals, indivi- professional mm-hmm. individuals. And I was thinking, the lame in the street, what are the levels of anger? And, and how do they then ventilate or displace such anger? And that, dis- that explains to a certain extent the level of violence that is within the American society. You know? And I think uh, processes such as the truth and reconciliation process could actually do a long way in dealing with so much anger um, and, and, and actually make it even much more easier to address issues of race. If you come to South Africa, we speak about race freely. You know, we engage with our uh, professionals uh, on directly on, on race issues. Of course, we're not perfect. We're still going through a lot of challenges insofar as race relations are concerned. Uh, we still didn't have uh, a complete uh, um, uh, transition insofar as the economy is still being in the hands of the minority uh, and the majority still without access to their land and therefore not access to opportunities and opportunities still are stewed and the distribution of resources and opportunities are still stewed along color and racial lines in South Africa but at least we are at a level where we can engage openly on issues of race and in fact In South Africa, racism is a criminal offence. If you are caught spewing racism, you are actually arrested and you are charged in the court of law. That's how far we've gone in South Africa. I mean, we've had uh, numerous cases where a white woman was uh, spewing racism. That particular individual has been uh, held accountable and was actually arrested and fined for spewing such racism. So it, it has gotten to that level that, because we are comfortable to engage on race relations, we have been uh, able to create uh, a systems in place through the law to hold those who advances racism openly to account uh, in the court of law and even be arrested for such as a criminal offence. And I don't think uh, the United States is anywhere closer to get to that level.
0: Mm. So, Madiba, one of the reasons I'm talking with you today, you are aware that I'm about to, to board a flight to Johannesburg on, on Friday. I will be there for 11 days with a group of public radio, radio listeners from around the country. Most of them are from Minnesota. What can we expect in our inter- interactions or our conversations when we're uh, in Johannesburg, when we're in Cape Town? What are the interactions like between uh, whites and, 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 and blacks and, and other people of color uh, throughout South Africa?
1: First and foremost, I think it's, it, South Africa is a good land to stand, one of the most beautiful countries. The people are lovely, languages are amazing. Um, You're going to have a lot of fun, and I can guarantee you by the time you leave, you would want to relocate to South Africa. It is that beautiful and it is that great. Um, and, the, and, and, of course, um, uh, if you land in uh, cities such as Johannesburg, it's a melting pot of different cultures. Uh, people from different walks of life, particularly across the African continent, are found in cities such as Johannesburg. And it is also the economic hub of the country mm. uh, to put things into perspective. So you'll find people from different walks of life. We have 11 official languages. So eleven? Really eleven languages? Eleven of, yes, eleven official languages. Those are official languages, <laughs> uh, including the, the colonial language, which mm-hmm. is English. So you'll find people different speaking different languages and they are comfortable in who they are. And that is their identity. And that is the kind of democracy we have created, a multi-party democracy, where everyone has an opportunity and a voice to uh, contribute. Um, but what you are also going to experience is um, a different perspective. There's been um, in, in in the Western world they've identified South Africa, for instance, in the transition process as a miracle, and there is, there is nothing miraculous about South Africa. We are we 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 have a system that was a, a liberation system or movement that was not complete it only ended on the transfer of the political power without the transfer of the economic power so we are still going to experience those disparities between the blacks and the whites with the white people staying and living in more affluent areas and uh, the middle class of south africa uh, staying in the suburbs as well and then the poorest of the poor staying in uh dehumanizing conditions in squalors in the shacks. and you are going to see that when you go to soweto what you're going to experience is how the uh, uh, the post-apartheid regime the mandela administration and subsequent administration try to actually transform the lives of the people by providing social housing for the poor uh, in a way to redress the injustices of the apartheid system, but that is also still a continuous process and also an incomplete uh, process in itself. But what you are also going to experience is the differences between how black people and white people live. In Soweto, our people live in a different kind of life. Uh, they are they enjoy certain opportunities and certain freedoms, but they are. Living in congested areas, uh, mm-hmm. where to to a certain extent that in other areas there is no access to healthcare, there is no access to sanitation, there is no access to water, there is no proper housing. Today, and those are the real. To even today, today, those are the realities uh, of uh, uh, under which our people are living under. And of course, when you go to Cape Town, you are going to see a very sharp contrast between white people and black people. Literally, in one street, side of the street, it would be affluent housing, and on the other side of the street, affluent housing where white people will reside, and the other and some few rich the black people and uh, privileged black people. And on the other side of the street, you're going to see people living in squalors and dehumanizing conditions um, in shacks, and that is the reality where they you can't even have. An ambulance that goes into that area where you can even have you don't even ha- have proper electrification, no access to water, no access to sanitation, no proper education system, or even clinics uh, or proper healthcare. So those are the realities of uh, uh, Cape Town and that province called the Western Cape. You remember when the white men came, they went through Western Cape. So the concentration of white people in the country is actually in the Western Cape and others are distributed across the country depending on where where the prime land is. So what you can, in general, to conclude, what you are going to experience is a situation where even though the, the, the country's transition from apartheid to democracy has been hailed as a miracle, actually it's not a miracle. You know, on the ground people are still suffering. Many mm-hmm. are still without access to basic uh, human rights. Many are still going through very racial systems uh, of oppression, particularly in the Western Cape and Cape Town. You're going to see how <laughs> level of racism, how white people are so racist. And in certain spaces, they would actually question whether you are supposed to be in that space. That's how even Western Cape is. And it also speaks into uh, gentrification, um, and even how even white black people are actually pushed outside of the city to provide space for white people by making prices ridiculously expensive and, and make, which makes it difficult for black people to even access such space. So those are some of the realities of mm. South Africa. But I would say when you come, just come with an open mind. You'll you be happy, you'll enjoy. In the midst of such challenges, we are still happy people. Uh, we still celebrate our cultures and uh, our history as well. Of
0: course, and and also I want to let you know my tour group we we will be visiting Robben Island uh, and that is uh the the prison where Nelson Mandela served most of his twenty seven years behind bars, and and I'm told and I'm really struck by this that many of the tours are led by former political prisoners. So t- tell me about that. Uh, the decision um, to turn this facility into a museum and then a tourist attraction because I'm kind of torn. I, I'm told like you'll take a ferry. You'll go, you actually see the cell where Nelson Mandela was behind bars, and, and I don't even know how to process
1: that before I even get there. Well, I think um, it, it was a very progressive political decision that the government has taken to say what they want to create of Robben Island is uh, to create a kind of a living museum, if you can put it in that perspective. By living museum is to say we are going to employ. Uh, former uh, political uh, prisoners to come and be the ones who actually tour guides and teaches the history of that particular space because they lived it Mm. instead of having it as a space, commercialized space without uh, being an empty shell. But it's important to make it a living museum. And that also plays a very key role In an agenda by a country to make sure that the injustices of our past do not repeat themselves tomorrow because history Mm -hmm. has a tendency of repeating itself so when we have people that went through that particular system and carry that legacy and that history it makes it even much more touching and even much more Alive for us when you are there, you get to understand in depth the injustices of the human race in general and particularly the apartheid regime, and to see uh, apartheid what it was and the crime it was, so that we do not repeat what went in that particular space. So it's a and also at the same time, I mean, you you most likely are going to share the tier or two uh, when you are there, when you get to uh, see the realities and how our people and our forefathers lived and how they're in prison in that space and what they had to endure in that space, it makes it uh, even more important for you to actually visit. It actually one of that space where many visit, they come back uh, rejuvenated and, and, and energized to continue the fight against uh, the various forms of injustice, be it racism, discrimination or apartheid, uh, wherever it is implemented elsewhere in the world.
0: And Madiba, my last question for you, I often like to ask my guests um, as we talk about challenges, uh, what gives you hope? What are you encouraged by right now as you think about uh, the present and the future?
1: I find strength and hope in the sacrifices that were made by the previous generation. I always imagine and I always think that if the generation of Mandela, the generation of uh, Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Rosa Park, and many other heroes and heroines, if they could be able to advance their own struggle, uh, given the limited opportunities that they had in their own time, if they can be able to achieve what they have achieved and laid the foundation for us, what would then stop us to continue that fight, given the opportunities that we have? It For me, those sacrifices actually informs and brings hope and strength to me to say, if they can do that, in fact, I look at it and say, actually, Nelson Mandela finished his law degree while he was in prison, then what would stop me from getting as much degrees uh, as possible to empower myself in order to be able to uh, engage more effectively in the fight that we are engaged in today. Hence, it was of critical importance. And to heed the call that education is the most important tool that we can use to change the world. So I had to go through education before I can even become an activist uh, and not become an activist by virtue of coming from the lineage of the Mandela family. So to say if this fellow can finish a degree while he was in prison, what would stop me from getting a PhD and what will actually stop me from doing even more than what he could do, given the challenges that he was confronted with and what his generation was confronted with? So that is the place to which I draw my strength. It is from those sacrifices. It is from that resilience. It is from that spirit to fight and move forward.
0: You've been listening to my conversation with the great-grandson of the late Nelson Mandela, who was the first Black president of South Africa and a Nobel Peace Prize winner. Siobu Mandela is a South African scholar and a social justice activist. He goes by the name Madiba. Tomorrow, I'm catching a flight to Johannesburg, South Africa, for an 11-day tour of the country. I'm traveling with a group of public radio listeners from Minnesota and eight other states. And we will be visiting historic sites in Soweto and Cape Town. We'll be touring vineyards and going on safari. You can follow along on social media. I'll be posting photos and sharing videos of the trip on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. You'll find me at Angela Davis NPR or at NPR News. You can also check out the website, nprnews.org slash South Africa. And when I return to the studio on Monday, February 6th, I'll tell you all about the trip. You'll hear the voices of many of the people I meet along the way, tourists and locals who live there. Today's conversation was produced by Samantha Matsumoto. Be safe, everyone. We'll talk again soon.